it was just a month ago or so when I was last here and I left that service really overwhelmed with the feeling. I mentioned it out loud at the end of what it's like to just have the privilege of standing here, being able to see so many people on the journey of faith and in the different ways and the different places in which you bring this life of God. And I, I wasn't planning on it this morning, but I noticed it again right away in first service before even hardly standing up here. What just a real uh, privilege it is to, to look out. I don't know where your journeys are taking you. I don't know what God is up to, but the very fact that God is up to something in all of your lives is uh, a place of profound hope for me and gives me strength to keep walking out whatever it is that God is up to in my own life. So I'm grateful to be here even though the topic this morning is the God of war. (coughs) Kind of debated whether or not just sort of running here during second service and saying, go ahead and get the tape from the first service. (laughs) But it's an interesting uh, journey to go through this last week. The, The first thing that came into my mind as I thought about this is I thought about in the year 140 A.D., in the very early streams of Christianity, many different movements happening, many different people trying to sort out the significance of the life and the death and the teachings in the resurrection of Jesus. And one such movement back in that time and space was a movement called Marcionism. And Marcionism was named, obviously, for the group of followers who were, were trailing after this theological figure named Marcion, who had some ideas about who this Jesus was. And there was one thing about Marcion that caught my attention for this week, and that's that he really, really, really did not like the God of the Old Testament insofar as he understood him. Marcion uh, saw this God, and here's a quote uh, from back in that time. Some of the other church figures said this about Marcion, that his view of God held that this God of the Hebrew Bible was inconsistent, jealous, wrathful, and genocidal, and that the material world he created was defective in a place of suffering. And the God who would make such a world was either bungling or malicious. So with that view, Marcion did what any, you know, logical Christ follower would do in that day. He threw out the entire Old Testament for his followers. Genesis, well, who needs it? Exodus, nah, not really. Leviticus, we don't understand it anyway, so why does it matter? Of course, Marcion was branded a heretic by the other streams of the church in that day and cast to the outside of the faith. But what caught my attention is, I don't know about you, but at least for me, there's some measure of space in my heart that sort of sympathizes (laughs) a little bit with Marcion, right? I don't know about you, maybe you, like me, are troubled by this wrathful, and warring God of the Old Testament, who seems to just fly off the handle at times, using his power sometimes, and and just wiping out the world, those who trouble him. Fine, maybe we're not going to throw out the whole Testament. But how do we understand this God? Is it possible to to walk this out in a way, even uh, together this morning, in a way where hopefully what I can do is, is, is carve out a little pathway of understanding down which we can travel that maybe it's more expansive or even somewhat different in the Old Testament than the understanding I just presented 
of this wrathful God, offended by sin, angry. We'll talk more about that in a second. We certainly can't resolve all of this in 35 minutes, but I'll do the best that I can to sort of carve out at least a little space down which we can walk. And then this whole thing about us being on a journey together. Maybe this topic matters more than we know. Maybe this isn't just an Old Testament thing. Maybe it's a 2014 thing. So with that, by way of introduction, let's pray as we begin and we'll dive in to see what we can understand here this morning. God, for the the eternality of your story, I ask that you would breathe your life into this place, into us, that our hearts and our minds would be quickened by your spirit in a way that calls us to see our journeys in the larger story, not just some little 2014 world, but that you have been up to something from the beginning. Breathe life into us as we walk through this. By the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, so I've already said some of this as we got started, and I don't know about you, when it comes to tough questions like this, I find that I will do one of two things. Either I will just sort of bracket it off and ignore it, sort of a victory through denial approach, right? Where I don't really want to think about it, so I'll deny it and just sort of walk and do my life. Or else the other option is to say, okay, well, what do I already think about this topic? And maybe in identifying what I already think about it, then maybe it kind of creates some pathways for investigation. So I don't know what you think about in sort of a free association way when you hear or see this image of the God of war. Here are some of the things I think about, see if they're familiar to you. I think, well, God is at war because God is angry. That seems simple enough. And then that asks the next question is, well, what is God angry about? Well, that's pretty simple, Capster. It's not that hard to figure out. God is angry about sin. Ah, well, now we've got it sorted out. Okay, God is angry about sin. And so what I think about this is that when creation sins, when we sin, God gets offended always by our sin, perpetually, pervasively offended by our sin. And his offense gives rise to anger. And sometimes that anger rises to such a degree that God just needs to blow his top, uh, let off some steam, wipe a few, a few people out, show them again who's in charge of this whole thing anyway, so that creation will be like, all right, we'll worship you. After all, after all, you can kill us. <laughs> all right, well, maybe that's not the exact picture that you have in your mind. But it's one that comes through, I would say it this way, because God is offended by our sin. His response is to get angry. Sometimes that anger gets to a point that we cross a line and he wipes us out. And therefore, then his, his anger thermometer is able to kind of come back down to a place of equilibrium, right? Well, again, I don't know how that resonates with you. I don't, you don't have to raise your hand on that, but... I know certainly in uh, studying through the various traditions in which I have grown up or taught in or moved in throughout the course of my life, this was a very consistent picture of the, uh, the God of the Old Testament in response to sin. And a lot of this picture was given, at least to the theological streams in which I grew up, uh, it can be traced back to perhaps one of the most famous sermons that has ever been given during an era of American revivalism, where a man named Jonathan Edwards gave a sermon. Maybe you know it. It is sinners in the 
Oh, you know this one too. Okay, so sinners in the hands of an angry God. And, and having just spent some of my life behind the scenes in theological institutions, this sermon is very much appealed to quite often as an appropriate picture of God. And so here are some of Edward's words. Andrew has a more expansive view up for the screen. I'll just read a piece of it for you with the picture that Edwards gives us. The wrath of God is like waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more. They rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it's let loose. And I wish I had like the voice of Jonathan Edwards instead of this like nasally tin can voice thing, you know. It's not as frightening, right? Okay, anyway. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. The bow of God's wrath is bent. The arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart, strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God. God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Kidding aside, every time I read that this last week, it it actually troubled me. The last part is, is hard to even read out loud. And so I asked myself the question in preparation for this sermon, this God always offended by sin, the waters of his anger rising up, finally blows off steam. Does that hold up to any sort of reasonable scrutiny? Does it hold up to biblical scrutiny? It might, but I'm at least going to ask the question. Because it's troubling to me. And I don't think we need to be scared to ask the questions. Just because something is famous... Catch this now. Just because something is famous does not make it right or wrong. Right? Just because something is famous does not make it right or wrong. There was a lot of people in this world at one time that believed the world was flat. It's a very famous idea. But it needed some testing to see if it was right or wrong. Okay? So with that, I sort of weighed this out and I wondered, you know, does God wage war? Yep. Does God wipe people out? Yeah. But is it because God is offended by our sin? Is that what he's up to? Is it because God is so every time he sees us and we kind of mess it up, he just gets offended? We don't sing those kind of songs, do we? (laughs) Oh, God, we know you're offended again. Just don't strike me. We don't have that. I mean, Joel should write that for a song. No, we shouldn't. (laughs) So I thought about it. I just thought, okay, let my mind wander just through the biblical witness a little bit. Is it possible to even poke holes? Not just to disregard all of that, the tradition of that, but just possible to poke some holes so maybe we can carve out some space to think about this a little more expansively. So there was four holes that I identified relatively quickly in this line of thinking related to a biblical view of God. First one I thought was most compelling or one of the most compelling to me was that Jesus makes this incredible claim. He says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And he says, I 
and the Father are... Okay. And what do we see when Jesus runs into sin? Is Jesus always offended by it? He can't stand... No, he ate with sinners. He hung out with sinners. And it doesn't appear that when he was hanging out, he's like, oh, I can't really stand you guys. If I had a chance, I'd just kind of knock you off. The Pharisees accused him of being a sinner himself, so closely did he identify with them. And then he says this, remember this, if you've seen me at this table with the sinners, you've seen who? You've seen the Father. Okay, I need to just think on that a little bit. What's going on here with this God who wipes people out in the Old Testament? Is it really because he's so offended by our sin? Second hole that came in my thinking, one of the most famous verses of all time, right? John 3.16. It wasn't God who was so offended by sin that his anger was blowing up that he sent his son. For God so what? Love the world. Something was motivating God to send his son to say, I will die for you. Third hole, uh, just sort of kind of exegetical sorts of things, but just you can do the research on your own if you'd like. The, God's anger in the text is always passing. It's always transient. It's not a central part of his character. It is real, and it is response to something. We'll identify what that is in a bit. But it is not a pervasive part of his character. He is rich in compassion. God is love, very slow to something different, anger. We'll talk about that some more. Fourth and final hole, I thought this was very interesting. It seems that his wrathful expressions are fueled not by being offended with sin, but out of grief and disappointment. That his movement to wipe out sin is being fueled with grief and disappointment. James McCowan, in his commentary on the book of Genesis, says this about the Noah story. The Genesis picture here emphasizes the picture that God himself suffers disappointment and grief. The cause of God's concern is the increasing wickedness of humanity. God's observation of the evil multiplying among human beings on earth has a dramatic effect. God is grieved. His heart is filled with pain. God is deeply disturbed by human behavior. However, it is grief and not anger that is prominent in God's reaction to the situation. He's not an angry tyrant, but a troubled parent. The situation affects God deeply, and the text says his heart is vexed or filled with pain. I love the New Living Translation. It says that it broke God's heart. Not God being offended. Ah! Something about what's going on broke his heart. So brings me this morning to the million-dollar question, really, as we try to maybe carve out some space. If, if, Peter, what you're saying is that this picture that I've had in my mind of when God sees sin, he's offended by it, and his anger rises to the point that he'll blow off some steam and wipe some people out to show that he's in charge, if, if that's not the picture, what is the picture? Because he is wiping people out at times. He does wage war. I don't have any other way of thinking about this. What's going on? I don't want to just reject the Old Testament. What is happening here? So to answer that question, it's going to be with breakneck speed. <laughs> I'm going to try to tell the story again. Right from the beginning. Let's just start with page one of the Bible. That always seems like a good place to start, right? 
What's happening? What is God up to? Is it possible that if we understand the wonder of Genesis 1 through 3, that we might just understand the rest of the text and not just the text, but what I'm going to do this afternoon and what I'll do tomorrow and what I'll do the next week and what the generations who follow me will do and follow them will do. Maybe there's a bigger story here at play. And if we understand that story, maybe we'll understand these little windows of time where God at times will wipe some people out. Okay, so I need to tell the story. And some of these concepts I've told before, but they bear retelling and starting with the beginning, then uh, this will feel a little bit like the Epcot Center ride I was on just last week where you build your own car and then you get to go test it out on this track and you get up to about 65 miles an hour outside and you're really, it's thrilling, but you feel like you're going to die at the same time. And so that's what this story will feel like. The very beginning, God creates over the course of six days. And everything he creates, he either declares or he sees as what? As good. Good. (laughs) And I've taught this concept before, but this word good is a very important little word. And in fact, I would argue it perhaps is the most important word of the entire biblical text. For what good here is, is it's not God being thrilled with himself and God saying, wow, look at that. I did it again. I get a gold star. That's good. Wow. You know, I kind of screwed up a few of the animals, but we won't talk about them. Ah, That's good overall, right? In the Hebrew, taken right from Strong's Concordance, you can look it up online yourself. The Hebrew word for good is the word tov. And what the word tov means, literally, just there's so many parts of the definition. I only got a few down here. It's agreeable to the senses, valuable in estimation, Bountiful and cheerful, fine and glad, joyful, ethically right, excellent and appropriate. So that's cool at first, but there's two pieces of the Hebrew language and understanding just Hebrew in general, just a short little lesson on this piece of it, that if we understand these two pieces, it really draws out the fullness of this word. And the first piece that we need to understand is that in the Hebrew language, when words are used, they are not just simple descriptions. All of the words in the Hebrew language are are representative of the function that that thing is. So let me say it this way. Um, The word good, we're not just describing something as being delightful or joyful or agreeable. It is the very function embedded within creation that that is what this is to be. And so creation is that, and in fact, it's called the Garden of Eden, which literally means Garden of Delight. It's this beautiful picture of, within this framework, the function of God's creation, all of which is good, is simply to be a place of delight in which we live. Another way to say this that I've heard drawn out is that Tov, or the definition of Tov, is that all of creation is filled with the potential for life as God intended. And that's delightful in God's intended design. But even more so, all of creation is embedded with the seeds of future life. And that's the second part of this Hebrew thing that I think is so cool. Many of the words that we think about in Hebrew that might be nouns are actually verbs. So human beings in the Hebrew our verbs. You and I are verbs. God is a verb. 
Creation itself is a verb. Being filled with the seeds of life meant to just keep going out, which makes sense when you think about it, because you can't really ever fix anything in time and space, can you? I mean, I will try, but there's really only past and future. I mean, I can try to, I'm in the present, I'm in the present, I'm never in the present. It's just immediately past, right? Or the future. And like in the time that I just made that ridiculous example, I sloughed off a few more skin cells because my body's ever moving, right? I mean, even my structure, it looks fixed, but I'm just a whole swirling mass of atoms, If you had a really small finger, you could poke right through me. (laughs) Don't try, please. Everything's a verb. It's active. And so there's this idea that creation is filled with the wonder and life and joy and splendor and beauty of God. And it's not meant just for this place. It's meant to just continue unfolding the seeds of his life, causing it to grow. I use this example in first service, borrowed from my wife, who she borrowed it from Someone else, Hallie, was teaching, and I, I think I can come down. I don't care about the camera. Um, and, uh, and Hallie was teaching some kids uh, one day, and she was teaching them this concept of tov. And she held out her hand, and in her hand was an apple seed. And she looked at the kids and said, all right, guys, what do you see? And they're like, we see an apple seed. Hello. She said, no, look. And also one of the 14-year-old boys, his eyes got really big. And he said, I see an apple tree. She said, yeah, keep looking. I see an apple tree with more what? Apples. And what do apples all have inside of them? Ah, they have seeds. And then his eyes got really big and he said, I see hundreds, thousands, millions apple trees on into infinity. The creation story is one of Tov. Meant to go because God is infinity, universe is infinity, the garden of delight just meant to keep spreading, 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 creating space for all things to live in their intended existence. It's a beautiful picture of creation. And it gets even crazier than that for me because at the end of Genesis 1, God puts two people on earth, his imago Dei, his very image on earth, and what does he say to them? You are the stewards of my creation. You are the stewards of my tov. I grant you the ability to, to hedge it and govern it and guide it and steward it and let it just draw forth. That is your job on this earth. They're actually described as being naked and unashamed at the end of Genesis 2. And that's not some little picture that we can paint on the walls of the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> Naked and unashamed literally means they are fully open to the power of God and acting wisely or being able to see as God sees. So why that picture? Well, the tov's a pretty big deal. God's life in his intended existence is, is meant to unfold. The delight is meant to just take over all time and space there to govern it. They had better be fully open to the power of God and being able to see as God sees and act with wisdom for that to take place. So the picture we have at the end of Genesis 2 is the wonder of the male and the female being given this command as creation is sort of shimmering and shaking, ready to burst forth, and they are the ones who are to guide and govern that. But of course, Genesis 3 happens. We know it doesn't work out that way. The serpent comes into the story. And the serpent introduces what? Doubt into the story. Really? Do you really need God for that? I think God is holding out a little bit on you. 
you know, come, come, come see this tree over here because it has, if within it, filled with what? The knowledge of good, tov, and evil. Ra. It's filled with that. And you don't need God. If you eat of this tree right now, the serpent says these words in the text, you will be like God. And you will have the fullness of the tov and the ra yourself. And with that doubt, the male and the female look up at the tree, Adam and Eve, and it says that the fruit was desirable for gaining wisdom. Just such a lie. They already had wisdom. But now that they doubted God in that, they were going to grasp after it on their own. They bite of the fruit. They take it. And of course, we know what happens from there. They begin to hide from God. They sew up fig leaves, no longer open to his power. And creation is now threatening to run amok. There's nobody there to govern the tov. The stewards have fallen. They have taken things on their own. That's the story. And here's the thing. And I would argue is the key to understanding this whole God of war this morning. Do we think for a second that at Genesis 3, God just gave up? Do we think for a second that God looked at the situation and said, Oh, my word, I don't know what to do anymore. I think I'm just going to head back to my heavenly realm and let creation kind of do its own thing. It's fallen. I mean, maybe a few thousand years from now, I'll send myself or something. But otherwise, maybe it's possible that God in that moment began to fight. Maybe it's possible that in many ways, in many manifestations, for his intended design on behalf of his tov, to protect the way his life is meant to be, to protect the possibility of delight on this earth, his Eden, just the enjoyment and the love and the wonder of God. Maybe it's possible that this text that we read in the Old Testament is simply God protecting his tov in many ways and in many forms. And sometimes to protect his tov, as a last resort, he'll wipe people out. And he did that at the flood, one of the next stories, because what does it say about the people of the flood? It says that their heart was inclined towards evil all of the time, all of the time. And God, in his grief and disappointment and seeing that they just would never yield, always stiff-necked, hard of heart, never hearing, the evil perpetrated itself to the point where their heart was always inclined towards evil. And God, in his great mercy to protect future generations from being born into that environment, said, enough, I have to take you out. My tove will persist. I'll start with you, Noah, and your family. You have the favor. Let's bring the animals back together in this ark and let's rebirth this whole thing. But the story of Babel, God didn't wipe people out in that story, but he did protect his tov. Because it says in that story that as they built this tower to the heavens, God says, if we don't do something now, nothing will be impossible to them which literally means in the Hebrew, no sin will be impossible for them. They will learn to invent ways to defy me. So the same God who, in protecting his tove in one instance, wiped out some people, in this instance, he just divided them up to keep sin at bay, to keep his story of the tove moving forward. His intended existence, my Eden, will persist. The story of Abraham is a story of tove. 
God calls out someone to protect his way of life, to be the chosen people, to be the light of the world. And he says, Abraham, to learn how to do that, you're going to have to leave everything that you hold dear behind and fully trust me. Open to me. Surrender to me. Leave it all behind. And Abraham bends his knee and says yes. And God says this then in Genesis 22. Your seed, Abraham, your seed, it's the word again, through your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you obeyed my voice. Same God who, in protecting his tove, wiped people out, divided the people, also called someone to life. Same thing behind it all. It's not a different God doing all these different things, exploding in offense. He's protecting his tove. And Abraham did screw up at one point, and God didn't wipe him out. He and Sarah tried to birth Ishmael, and that was not the promised way. So God did test Abraham again. That's why he brought him up to the hillside with Isaac to test this whole thing. If you're going to be the steward of my tove, I need to know that you're going to bend and surrender and yield, even if it doesn't make sense. The opening covenant word to Moses on the the mountain of Sinai, God says this, do not put any other gods before me, which literally means in the Hebrew, do not put any other gods upon my face. Only see me with clarity. Let it come all, just look into my face. I will teach you, and I will lead you, and I will guide you. story keeps going, just breakneck speed. I love the story of Hannah. Hannah's an amazing story. Same God who at times will wipe out uh, the people to protect his tov, divide him up. He will sometimes call people out. In this case, he opened the womb of a woman to continue his tov. For somehow, Hannah, it seemed, recognized the depravity of what was happening in the temple. She recognized that the very keepers of the Tov had become depraved. Eli was just passive as his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were just running roughshod over the people. And Hannah looks over at her, her uh, other husband's wife and the son's there and doesn't see anything in that. And so she goes to the temple and cries out to God for a son. Except that the Hebrew word for son there is not literally son. It literally means seed man. Or better yet, seed for the people. You ever wondered why Hannah had such an easy time? It seems, in the text, giving up Samuel to the temple. Samuel was never hers to begin with. She was, he was for the people. And he became the Tob judge of the people. And Hophni and Phinehas die then shortly thereafter. Eli sits on a chair, and, and it has a rocking chair, and it broke, and he died. And Samuel is left to govern the people. The seed will continue. The same God who wipes people out to protect his tove, when necessary, opens up wombs to protect his tove. It's not a God offended by sin. It's God moving in the midst of it to do whatever needs to be done for his Eden. He took the spirit from Saul at one point because Saul proved untrustworthy. Saul gave sacrifices that were not his to give in panic about a war that was coming. Saul also didn't wipe out all of the Amalekites as he was supposed to because he was scared about what the people would think. And God said, oh, Saul, I need to take my spirit from you and give it to this little shepherd boy who's a man after my own heart who will stand in front of a giant when it makes no sense with just stones and a sling and will follow this out. Did David screw up? Yeah. Did God strike him down? No. 
Because David just kept coming back and repenting and yielding. And much tov was brought to the point where he is right. He, he's, he's the throne of David that this promised one is going to come. We'll say more about that in a second. Elijah challenges 400 prophets of Baal. God shows his way there. God prevails, wipes out their evil influence. The story continues. Creation continues to resist. All the northern kings of Israel are evil, most of the south as well. God allows them to be taken out and into captivity, but there's a little remnant there in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they keep this light going to the point they return to the land. And then God, in this unreal movement, acts yet again to protect his tov in the most profound way. Or a star appears in the east. And God says, I'll come down. Let me show you again what I'm about. Let me show you the fullness of who I am. Because if you see this one here, you see me too. If you see Jesus, you will see me. I will walk this out. I will show you yet again the way. I will walk in the wilderness with the same serpent at that garden. And when he tries to come with me with doubt, I will show you again how to yield. For man shall not live by bread alone, but by the words that come from the mouth of the Father. And Jesus takes the serpent in the wilderness and walks that out all the way to his own garden story in Gethsemane. And he could have called down 10,000 angels and grasped after God-likeness there as well. But he didn't. What did he say? Father, nevertheless, let your will be done. And he walked it out. And he broke the power of sin in some crazy, profound ways through his death and resurrection. But the story gets even better. And here's where we come in. The story hasn't changed. God is still about the business of his tov. He says this then, so anyone who is in Christ, anyone who is leaning into, who, who yields themselves to this one who broke the power of sin and death, know this, you are like a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And all this is from God, says Paul, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and he gave us then the ministry of reconciliation. What needs to be reconciled? The Tov, Eden, the way things are meant to be. For in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and in Him there is what? There is life. And the little Greek word for life is the rough equivalent of the Hebrew word for Tov. Life is the word Zoe, and it simply means the ethical and essential existence of God Himself. So lean into me, and I will give you Life. He says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He wasn't like, not counting their trespasses against them. And he entrusted to us then the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are all in this room ambassadors for Christ, as though God of the Tov is now making his appeal through us. So Jesus says things like this. You want to be a part of what I've been up to since the beginning which is about having the space in the place of my intended kind of existence, remain in me and you will do what? You will bear much fruit. And what does fruit have that vegetables don't? Seeds. You'll bear this out. 
my dynamic, unfolding verb creation in your time and space remain in me. Move this forward. That's why Paul says things like, you know what the fruit of partnering with the Spirit is like? You want to know what Eden is like? You want to know what a church could be like? That would feel a little bit like a place of delight? Well, the fruit might be things like love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control, that that is coming from the inside out. But I'm not going to say that it's easy. There still is the same story. There still is the same tove and raw taking place. And there's the same God who sometimes protects through just removing the influence of sin when it has fully played itself out. But not until then. Not until it is fully hardened, fully wrecked does he do that. It's the same God who opens wombs, who will call out people to bend their knee. He will do that work. In fact, it's an incredible statement for me anyway. In Isaiah 59, when God has this picture of going to war, God puts on the helmet of salvation and he puts on the breastplate of righteousness. And in Isaiah 52, he puts on the shoes of, uh, of peace. And then in the New Testament... Well, we just studied this as a church, right? Over the last couple months, Paul says this. Just remember this. The battle here that's in this time and space right now is not against flesh and blood. But there still are spirits and authorities and principalities of this present darkness who will look to create doubt so that you go a different direction with all of this. So know this. In the midst of all of that, put on the armor yourself. And God gives us the ministry of reconciliation and gives us the armor to do it. This is the story. This is what we're up to. I, I know our world, it doesn't look much like the world of Genesis 3 and 2 and 1 with all of our little gadgets now in our buildings and all of our technology and mobility and cars. And sometimes I wish I could look from outer space just to see these billions of almost like ants just running around kind of like, I'm just trying to survive here, Kapsner. Right? Because I am too. And I'll survive through my email and Facebook and make sure that's all updated and Snapchat and Instagram. And, and I'm not even sure what to do anymore. And maybe all of that is like, huh. You know, sometimes I think the movie The Matrix, right? If you remember that old movie where they go down finally at the rabbit hole and they see what's really happening. Sometimes I wonder if all of this stuff, we can't even see the story anymore, but the story is the same for our children and for the people around us. There's Tov and there is Ra. I love Sarah Groves says it this way in her beautiful song, Generations about what we're up to here. She says this about her daily life. I can taste the fruit of Eve. I'm aware of sickness, death, and disease. The results of Eve's choices are vast. She was the first, but she wasn't the last. And if I were honest with myself, had I been standing at that tree, my mouth and my hands would be covered with fruit, things I shouldn't know and things I shouldn't see. And this weighs heavy, I mean, this next part, as a parent, as someone who speaks, as someone who just lives in this world, remind me of this with every decision. Generations will reap what I sow. I can pass on a curse or a blessing to those I will never know. It's a story that we're in, and it will continue. We're going to sing here in just a moment, a few more words now, and right after we finish singing, but someday when the earth mounts its final resistance 
the fullness of the tov will be restored again. There will come a moment when creation, it is what it's called, marked by the beast. And I don't know what goes into your, 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 your mind's eye when you hear this mark of the beast thing. I know for me sometimes growing up, it was this fear that I'd walk down the streets of Minneapolis and somebody would have like a branding iron with 666 on it, right? And I'd just have to try to duck out of the way or they'd just drill me. And I'm like, oh, now I'm marked. I didn't even want to be. Well, okay, maybe you didn't think that way. I did. Had a very confusing childhood. Um, the mark of the beast, the reason why it talks about it, it's not just on the head, but it's on the hands as well, is it is symbolic of the idea that creation once again will have come to a place where sin has run roughshod, where the light of the world is no longer holding it back, where Eden has been demolished yet again. There's no place of delight because every way in which people think and all of the actions of their hand will be marked by the rebellion of the beast. Okay, it's the exact opposite picture of Deuteronomy 6 where God says this to his people, let this mark your head and your hands, and he does say this in Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. Tie that on your wrist. Put it on your heads. Let all of your thoughts be governed with the love of me. Let all of what you do be governed with me. But someday it isn't going to be that way. And when that happens, the scrolls of heaven will open and the white rider will come and John said this about the beauty of that revelation. He said this, that they, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And then this picture, it sounds like the garden again, doesn't it? On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit for us in every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And the creation that ran amok way back when, continuing now, will be fully restored. It is our story. There isn't another story. No matter what this world looks like, this is the only one. And our decisions matter. They bring life or death, tov or ra, into this story. So with that, let's sing... Just even about the love of God and, and, and hopefully this picture in play that God is not looking to strike us down for our sin. He's looking to partner with people that, yes, we mess it up, but partner with people who yield to him to continue his story of Tov in this world.